I'm Tash McGill. And I'm Vincent Herringer. And this is The Feed, a weekly wrap of the news, views and skews on New Zealand food, drink and everything in between. The feed is for those who grow food. The ones who make, harvest and forage. Who package, ship and sell food. Most importantly, for those who eat food and like to talk about it. So join us at thefeed.co.nz and now, welcome to The Feed Weekly. This week, in our 25th episode and our final episode for 2021, we're wrapping up a year in food with some of the most important stories, the lessons learned, the news that caught our attention, and a look to the future. But first, let's talk about the upcoming festive holidays and what that means for our kitchens, our tables, our hospitality industry, and our favourite traditions. Uh, joining us today, Vicky, welcome back. It's the three co-founders, um, and what a year it's been on the feed. Um, let's start with Vincent. What does Christmas look like when it comes to eating and drinking for you this year? Oh, hi, Vicky and Tash. Nice to see you. Um, very traditional for us. It's all about family. It's all about outside. So there's not a lot of innovation that happens uh, in our cuisine around Christmas, but it's happy ham, happy chickens, happy turkeys, and then vegan nut roll for the vegans in the family. Uh, the coomera and grape salad always makes an appearance um, I reckon there's usually an ice cream cake somewhere in there. That's a Sarah special. Oh. It's a lot of work, but I've, delicious. What what kind of ice cream cake? Well, uh, it's basically just ice cream stacked, uh, lathered in nuts and uh, cream, uh, other delicious things. I couldn't, but it, it has a biscuit base. Um, so, you know, it has to be frozen and then delivered to the table straight out of the freezer. And then gallons of Prosecco and gin, I would suspect. <laughs> there you go. Vicky, what about you? Yeah, ours is really traditional as well. And one of those traditions is that I do all the cooking. So <laughs> that happened at about 16 or 17 years old. My um, grandmother passed the baton to me, and um, so I have a few rules. No one's allowed on the tiles in the kitchen after 10 o'clock in the morning. So I'm all good with the cooking as long as they all just leave me to it. Um, and it's pretty traditional. I mean, like we have um, – so my grandparents were um, sheep farmers, so there's got to be lamb. That was their tradition. And my dad's um, family always had pork, so when – the two families joined. We had lamb and pork. There was a brief moment where we had an, an in-law join us, and their tradition was turkey. So we used to have lamb, pork, and turkey. <laughs> they no longer join us for Christmas, so we've been able to knock the turkey off. Um, and then um, we have three desserts. Again, there was the traditional steamed Christmas pudding from my mum's side, and then Dad makes a trifle that if you walk too fast with it, it sloshes over because there's more port in the trifle than there is um um sponge but it's um it's it's dad's trifle is just the best do you and like the brandy on the steamed christmas pudding yes definitely definitely and it comes with a proper creme anglaise mm, um good. so yeah so it's all yeah but I, you know the the three desserts carry on for about the next three or four days we're still eating christmas puddings just yum yeah. Mm, yeah, good go. traditions, yeah. good times. Yeah, Tash, yeah. how about you? What's happening in your fam this year? Yes, so uh, this year Christmas is being hosted at my house for lunch, uh, my sister's for breakfast, and you know the wee kids will be opening up, opening up their gifts. But um, 
we have we have one firm family um, tradition, and that is um, size matters. So whether it's the size of the Christmas tree <laughs> or the size of the ham, um, both need to be as big as possible uh, and the big probably family tradition tradition for us is that the ham has to be big enough that it can then be sliced into hunks and divvied up to <laughs> each member of the family that then departs on Christmas Day mm. um, so yeah but this year uh, it's the first year with my um, my baby sister home from the UK and she and her husband are pescatarian and so um, usually we're a ham and lamb you know, they rhyme. Uh, my step, my stepdad's uh, balsamic lamb on the barbecue is the way to go. It is absolutely delicious. So I'm in, I'm in charge of that this year. We'll have the ham, traditional glaze, and then a salmon. I'm going to do that salmon. Um, gent- uh, well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to cure it in some sugar and rum. And then I'm going to smoke it on a uh, cedar plank in the barbecue. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be delicious. We do have a lot of barbecue type features, actually. We try and kind of keep that summer um, vibe going. One of my favourite Christmases, actually, was at the batch. Um and I had I had bought prawns for you know a bit of a a bit of a an appetizer, um, and then I thought to myself, well I've got this massive you know couple of kilos worth, so I might as well just cook them all and we can have them in a salad tomorrow or something you know, yeah. Well I just kept cooking them on the on the flat top on the barbecue, and they just kept disappearing. Yeah. And before you know it, <laughs> Christmas lunch had become a a long grazing table of uh, of small of small prawns, <laughs> followed eventually by 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 ham, but. I think one of the other great things about our Christmas is that it's almost always imperfect on its quest to be perfect. <laughs> um, and and I quite I quite like to encourage people now to maybe consider that the perfect Christmas is somewhat imperfect. Well, I think the perfect Christmas is that kind of um, 48 hours, isn't it? So, you know, it's like a minimum 48-hour commitment to, uh, to eating and drinking over the course of, well, you know, stretch it out as long as you can. <laughs> Well, that's what I say about Dad's trifle. Is it's, I mean, it's it's just it's almost nicer the next day, and yeah. the next day, you know. And then when the trifle is no longer, you realise you find this tin foil parcel and it's a bit of Christmas pud, <laughs> and you're like, oh, I didn't appreciate this on the day because I was too full, because I'd already had, you know, the full. So they're actually nicer the next day when you've actually got room to appreciate them. So the old Christmas pud is something that I haven't ever. I don't mind it, but it's not for me one of those things that I absolutely have to have. Um, but we're rolling out this year a, uh, a, a traditional Christmas log. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, going back into the archives of, you know what. But, yeah, the old the old Christmas log, uh, chocolate log yeah. mum's going to make. I said, well, if you're coming down to stay at my place, um, you know, I don't, I don't have a sponge tin, so you'll probably have to bring one with you. Yeah, horrors to discover she doesn't even make the sponge. She just... She just buys it from the supermarket. Yeah, oh, there you go. Traditions yeah. were out there. Oh, eh? what the what? <laughs> anyway, um, in this Christmas wrap-up episode, we wanted to actually uh, round up the year, and uh, obviously, it's been a pretty exciting year for us with launching this project and and uh, bringing people on board. And we've interviewed a lot of people. We've uh, covered a lot of news stories. Um, so I thought let's talk about the biggest and the most important food stories of the year. Maybe the ones that have you know struck us. Um, the most uh, and I'll start for me um, there were really probably two 
stories that stuck out to me. One was the ComCom uh, consideration around the supermarket duopoly, um, and and that for for a brief period of time, for about three weeks, there was actually really considered national media attention on what are our supermarket prices doing and what's the impact of that on the way that we shop and the way that we eat and then what do we do to change that up um, and I think the response of, of both foodstuffs and um, Progressive has been really quite an interesting um, observation uh, and I'm really interested to see what happens with players like Soupy coming into the market and a number of other more general grocery online retailers to see how the supermarket landscape is going to shift in the next 12 to 18 months um, but particularly I'm going to be interested to see how those eventual recommendations from ComCom actually fall out and how they how they impact us, mm. um, especially when it comes to the checkout. You know, I do think we are alongside that story. We also have because of supply chain issues, because of changing seasonal markets and the way that climate change is affecting some things. You know, we're seeing both both gluts and um, and uh, droughts in the market when it comes to various produce and so that has an overall impact on what our shopping cart looks like so we have seen that that increasing um, that increasing price rise at the supermarket anyway um, so that's that's something for me has just been a really really massive story and the other one that I that I wanted to talk about briefly and I'd be interested um, Vincent because you interviewed Lisa King on this um but there's, there's two things that I've been paying attention to. One, the data supports now that, in fact, New Zealanders are drinking differently. Globally, we're drinking differently, but New Zealanders are drinking differently as well. And, in fact, there was a report that came out last week um, that had Australia tipping the table uh, in terms of uh, recent alcohol consumption per capita and New Zealanders at the bottom of the top ten. Well done, us. Well done, us. Um, but in the midst of that... Um, there's a couple of couple of questions that I'm interested to keep looking at and watching. Um, the anti-alcohol lobbies had a really strong year. Um, they've had an enormous amount of press coverage, and it's been escalating actually in the last month or so. Um, talking about you know, uh, and anytime you see a story that that features alcohol alcohol health watch um, or many of those other kind of industry names, um, you know that that's part of that's part of the anti-alcohol lobby. Um, the big question that I have um, in the observation is: is the decrease consumption is that being influenced by the work that alcohol health watch are doing or is it partly influenced by the emerging opportunities and brands and products that are making it easier for people to make non-alcoholic drinking choices when they're out wanting to have a good time so we have interviewed lisa king from af drinks um, but we've also talked to um, liars we've talked to people from seedlip you know there are lots and lots of options out there now um, and i think that's been an interesting growing segment of of kind of market understanding mm. what are your thoughts on that vincent well i think if i take my kids as an example they're now early to, uh, late teens early 20s they don't drink a lot of alcohol and that's not i don't think because they've been listening to the to those lobby groups that you mentioned i think it's become um well who knows what other drugs they are partaking in that they're not telling me about perhaps <laughs> but i also think that um it's a cultural phenomenon, you know, that they are mm. drinking less. It's, I mean, alcohol is very expensive. It's very hard for them to drive. So the rules around when you're young and and drinking, you, you can't drive at all if you've had one drink. So I think there's a kind of a zeitgeist happening. And then you match that also with an, 
when an aging population, it is uh, representing here the plus 50-year-olds, it is harder to drink a lot and maintain health. So I wonder mm. whether there's a sort of cultural change that's happening at the, at the young end and the older end that's influencing these changing drinking habits. But it's kind of good, isn't it? You know, we're drinking less and drinking better. I'm saying that's one of the social media phenomenons with young people, and I can understand it because imagine if there was footage of yourself at 18 when you used to drink Yes. now out there. So, you know, this is a generation that's growing up being filmed and videoed at all times so they're very aware of that Mm. um and so having the alcohol-fueled youths that we probably remember is not (laughs) quite as attractive is it everybody can see that including yourself to remind you about what you did what you said Um, yeah how you got your head stuck down that rubbish bin (laughs) you know one of one of these days we should we should recount just so that i can feel good about myself my remarkably sober youth oh my um yeah yeah it wasn't until somebody intentionally set out to give me the experience of being miserably miserably hung over the next day um in my in my mid-20s that i ever experienced anything but moderate drinking oh, but that's one anyway. of the benefits of being young you don't get a hangover do you I don't know. Uh, Vicky, what were the big stories for you this year? Oh, for me, it has to be the stories around hospitality and the contradiction of where we place that in our lives. I think if any of us have been, you know, it's those lengths of lockdown, what we missed the most was hospitality. It wasn't necessarily food that we could get and things. It was actual going out and enjoying some really great hospitality. And I think that it's clear that for New Zealand to have a world-class food story, we have to have a world-class hospitality offering yet our government seems to completely neglect the hospitality industry at every twist and turn of the last couple of years um, events and so for me I think um, you know there's some massive massive um, hurdles in the industry pre-COVID that have just been exasperated with the situation and one of them has to be the, um, the talent and the staff shortages um, and without any immigration or any um, working tourism, uh, that's just been made worse. And now how we've we've sort of treated the hospitality industry and devalued it as far as an industry that we care about and, and just expect them to just get on with it and deal with what's going on instead of actually helping them as an industry, you sort of wonder why anyone would get into into it why would anyone you know it's a it's one of those mm. um, industries that are so I think we're going to keep, keep hearing more and more about it and it's going to absolutely change um, massively what we have on offer in New Zealand because of the last two years and um, you know call me a sort of a conspiracy theorist but I feel like the government has used some of the um COVID examples to actually push a narrative in a certain way that is actually detrimental to hospitality. Um, and we and no one's going to realise that until a few years' time when we don't have what we want it, to, we won't have what we expect. So, yeah, mm, so I think mm. that's massive. Yeah, I definitely, you know, I definitely would would I definitely would agree with with huge parts of that. I think what we don't, what is not part of the out and out 
narrative at the moment is this idea that if we can just get out of these lockdown scenarios, if we can just get to a level where we can all go back out, that everything will kind of go back to normal. But the long tail impact on our hospitality industry is so huge. And I don't think we'll really see the full impact for another couple of years. And I put that hand in hand with with the tourism impact, because so much of our, of our hospitality sector actually relied on tourism to really thrive. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think I think you're correct. And for me, the other big story being that, um, uh, or aspect of that being just the enormous skills loss um, that we've seen and, and not just, not just people coming in, but actually skills departing offshore yeah. that we, that, that we may never, that we may never get back. Yeah. But also, I mean, you know, I think immigration, um, in for hospitality, it really offers, it's a two way streak. I mean, like I, I, I spent most of my career in hospitality and, um, and gained so much by going overseas and learning more and, and things and then coming home and bringing that back. And I think that we are looking at um, the, the immigration and the people that feed into hospitality, hospitality only as a one-way street when it's actually two-way. We send a heck mm. of a lot of our, our um, talent overseas to do really well. Some of them stay, but majority of them come back and add to our our um, pool of of what we have to offer, and um, so it's got to be seen as a as a two way road. But at the moment, it feels like the government just thinks that we only the hospitality industry only expects to get cheap labour in, and that's not what it's all about. It's about so much mm. more than that. Um, so yeah, and I think if you want diversity and, and offering in your hospitality and stuff like that, you have to you have to have people from other cultures. That's what it's about, and and the and the skills and and what they bring. Otherwise, we're only ever going to have what we had in the seventies, and that's chicken chow mein at your fish and chip shop, and that's going to be the you know the most exotic dish you're ever going to be able to eat in New Zealand. <laughs> we can't go back. We mustn't go back. <laughs> so yeah. Anyway. Vincent, what what do you think of those big, big stories this year? Uh, Well, I've got a a slightly different take on the COVID story because, of course, COVID really has been the only story in town. But the impact on shipping and freight has been profound for the industry. I've got friends who work in Kotahi, which is the um, Fonterra Silverfern Farms Alliance, for getting our primary produce offshore has been so hard. Uh, Shipping lanes, you know, blocked up around the world especially in um, Suez Canal Um, but you know all around the world shipping's been a a major problem and that is a huge issue for New Zealand getting our all our lovely produce offshore and has contributed um, to the avocado glut when we have avos selling for nine cents a piece it's wonderful for us um, avo consumers but really difficult for the growers so I think COVID's had sort of, you know, all these effects on the industry. Another trend that I'm seeing a lot of this year is sort of bubbling away below the headlines. Uh, and this is this rise and rise of regenerative farming, uh, which has been studied a lot by science. So ag research, our land and water. Um, there was a big initiative just announced last week with Danone, uh, ag research and um, and Sinlay. And... Um, they're going to combine a whole lot of um, farms together in Waikato to study regen farming. So I think the sort of how do we resolve the issue of being sustainable producers but also maintain an export industry? And I think regen has got a lot of potential in that regard. So quite exciting. 
that is super exciting. Um, we also are now really lucky to be joined with uh, one of, um, I think, New Zealand's you know best food writers, but also someone who knows a great recipe book when she sees it. Uh, we were lucky enough to get Lorraine Jacobs to give us her top book picks for recipe books of the season, uh, just in case you're looking for some inspirational summer reading. Lorraine, thank you so much for taking the time to give us your uh, hot list of must-reads for Christmas and summer. What have you got for us? What shall we be diving to the bookstore to grab? Well, I hope that you're actually going to be diving into the kitchen once you get these books, because I actually think that that's really important. Um, It's been a very interesting year for cookbooks. And when I came to sort of compile this list, which I, I, I reached out to Australia and UK, but then I've come back to New Zealand. It's amazing how many times the word home appears in the title of the books. And I guess that was reflective of everyone around the world's been stuck at home and uh, probably all cooking. And it's made people, it's made the writers of this world really turn to that. So I wanted to kick off with Australia because two, in fact, probably the three, no, she's missing. Maggie B is not there. She hasn't done a book, but really there are uh, two writers in Australia that I'm in absolute awe of. and, and The number one is Stephanie Alexander because she's really the kind of godmother of all cooking in this part of the world. And I can remember her very first book, um, not her very first book, but the the first time she put that wonderful book together, A Cook's Companion, it sold 300,000 copies. And, you know, in in an age where 3,000 copies is a successful book, 300,000 right back in the year 2000 was enormous. And she's got a new book out, and it is simply called Home, and it's her favourite recipes. But being Stephanie, it's actually full of wonderful reading as well, longer sort of little essays that cover her life, which her life has really been uh, travel and also, of course, her wonderful kitchen garden programme. So she also looks at children in the garden and children cooking. So her favourite recipes, fantastic book, Um, a kind of must-have if you are a friend of a, a fan of Stephanie Alexander because you can't go past her. The other favourite writer from Australia has another book out and that is Belinda Jeffrey. and not so many people know her and the book has only just come out this month but it's called A Year of Sundays and she lives in northwest on a farm in northwest New South Wales and so she's got this Year of Sundays which she actually does a terrific Instagram program worth following and hers is a cookbook Um, which is a conversation as well as a cookbook. And so she's done these reflections on the world around her. She has a gorgeous garden on her farm, as you would expect, and she also runs a cooking school. And I have always found her recipes just just where I want to be. You know, like if I'm really stuck for some inspiration, it's interesting that I will actually be reaching quite often for Belinda Jeffrey. And then the third one is a very seriously, much more serious cookbook um, for for chefs probably, but also for fishermen and people who love seafood. And it's the second book from Josh Nyland, and he has a wonderful restaurant in Oxford Street in Sydney. And his second book is called Take One Fish, and it is scale to tail. We've heard so much about eating meat and nose to tail, but but Josh's new book is scale to tail, and it is just glorious. And I'd love to be able to wave it around here, but it's actually up at my beach house where I live with my fishermen. <laughs> <laughs> so, and of course, the good thing about Australian books is that they're always in sync with our seasons too. 
and it's only a short hop across the ditch. And we actually are used to, apart from, say, prawns, but in all, Stephanie and Belinda and Josh book, they are, uh, they are ingredients that we easily recognise. So I think that, you know, and, uh, and they, their production values in cookbooks in Australia is very high. And so these are all absolutely fabulous. And all of them would make great gifts for cooks, but they also got all, the whole three have loads of reading, which for me is a priority in a cookbook. Anybody can compile recipes, but to actually be able to tell the stories, I think, is really important. Anyway, I want to move on to the UK because, you know, the, the UK really has always been, I mean, there was always that great divide between the UK and America, and I used to ponder it. But in the end, it came back to thinking the British really know how to write cookbooks that will engage with people. Um, and they don't need, they're not in such a big country, so they don't need to go for these trendy little niches. Nigel Slater, he's a fabulous writer, and he has a book out this this uh, this Christmas, and it's called uh, Simple Food Made Good. It's a cook's book is actually the main title of it, but the subtitle, Simple Food Made Good. And Nigel's food is always simple. He just made, puts these things together, and he writes so beautifully, possibly one of the best food writers alive in, at the moment. And, uh, and he cooks a lot in his garden. He has reflections on his garden. And he does cook simple food. And it's also, Nigel's books are always great for people when there's just one or two of you because he doesn't cook for large numbers. So that's always an added plus you get with Nigel. Otolinghi, I've put it in there. Otolinghi has become kind of like a brand rather than a writer. And his book that's out at the moment, which is just selling itself off the shelf, and it is called Shelf, actually isn't really by Otolinghi. He supervises in so many of his books. He does that now. Um, and this is actually by his test kitchen. So Otolinghi test kitchen shelf is, is if you're an Otolinghi fan, probably worth going to. You can't go wrong with it. And finally, from the UK, the one that the chef that we all love to love, Rick Stein. And he's got a book, Rick Stein, at home. And here we've got this home again coming through. It's mostly he's written books that are kind of travel oriented, or he's written books that are like, absolutely relate back to his program, which is where he goes to Italy or to Sicily or to France or to Spain. And he has recipes from that, you know, all in that genre. But this one is very much the way that Rick Stein cooks for his family at home. So it's worth having a good look at, especially if you're a lover of Rick Stein. And of course, a lovely production again. Now I want to move on to New Zealand because we are doing some cookbooks and we're doing some cookbooks really well. For anyone who you know who's on a plant-based diet, you cannot go past salad by two raw sisters. Um, Rosa and Margot Flanagan have got a whole, uh, they do workshops on, on plant-based cooking. And this is a book filled with platters of vegetables, but there's some wonderful dressings in there. There's lots of flavour. It's a little bit Otolinghi inspired, but if you like that kind of spicy thing given to your food, and vegetables often need it too. This is a great this is a great little book to have. Then Annabelle Rowe, Annabelle and Rose Langbein, Annabelle Langbein and Rose Langbein have put out a little book this year. It's only $25, but it would be a great stocking filler. It's called Summer at Home. And it's their sort of modern take. And it's quite interesting to see um, the two generations and the sort of slightly turn that that's given to Annabelle's cooking. Um, and of course, because she lives with this absolute dream of a garden by Lake Wanaka. There's lots of fresh veg from her garden that are interesting. 
Then I want to mention saffron swirls and cardamom dust, which is a relatively new um, writer in New Zealand. She has done one book before. Um, and she is, her name is Ashmail, Ashia Ismail Singer. And this book would be the most beautiful book of all the books that I have, have uh, presented and uh, presenting today. Um, but uh, that's due to Crystal Lowe's amazing photography and the precision with which Asher bakes. It's not a book for beginner, beginning bakers, unless they just love to look at food, because some of the things are quite complex. But it's certainly a book for people who love to bake, perhaps like you yourself, Natasha. <laughs> and uh, it will spice up your baking because of her, her sort of inherent Indian inheritance that she's had in her family. She uses spices beautifully. And finally, in the New Zealand cookbooks, I want to come to what for me, which is the cookbook of the year here. Um, Lucy Corrie is a rising name in food writing. She's been around for a long time, but this is her first book that she's actually put her own name on the cover. She's been had a huge following on her blog, The Kitchen Maid, but she has put this book out. And once again, here we are with Home, and it's uh, Home Cooked by Lucy Corrie with a beautiful cloth cover, big book. But what I love about Lucy's uh, recipes is that it's actually the way that we cook a lot in New Zealand. It's the sort of thing that I could pick it up now after this little broadcast and go downstairs and probably find enough ingredients in my kitchen to cook something absolutely delicious. I mean, she has a little whole section on condensed milk, another section on those wonderful, probably the best fruit that's ever gone into a can around the whole world, Doris Plums, that what he's put out. Pam's have a version too. Um, and she really has the most amazing respect and she's cap captured that respect for New Zealand ingredients. So the white bait section, you know, several ways with white bait. It's almost out of season now, but there's a little bit of it round left frozen that we can use on our Christmas table. So that kind of wraps up the, the, the cookbooks. But I couldn't go past mentioning without mentioning this book, Stanley Tucci, because one of the things that I've got in my house is a collection of literary food writing. And Stanley Tucci, who, of course, is much loved by people who are film buffs, has written a wonderful book. He grew up in America in an Italian family. He's been to Italy, and, 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 but he just absolutely writes so beautifully about his life in food. So Stanley's book is called Taste, and it is My Life Through Food, and it's just wonderful. Especially would make a great gift for anybody to read because, you know, I am actually reading it. Normally I pick any book up and I read it to the end. This one, I'm savouring it so much that it's only allowing myself a chapter about every two or three days. And, of course, one of the other great hits of 2021's published books was Lorraine Jacobs' own book, It Takes a Village, A Guide to Matakana and Its Surrounding Districts, published by Massey University Press and featuring photography from Ken Downey. You can pick up a copy of this book, which truly is a spectacular guide to getting the most out of one of our most precious regions uh, by at any good book retailer or directly from Lorraine, lorrainejacobs.co.nz, and you'll be hearing more from Lorraine. So as we head towards the new year, we're thinking a lot 
about the uh, formal launch of the feed. At the moment, what you're seeing and experiencing is us giving it a crack. And the good news is that we are getting sponsors and partners on board. And we expect to have a bit of a soiree in February to formally launch the feed, which is getting great uptake from you, our dear listeners and our readers. So we've got more stories underway. Uh, We've got the um, continuing uh, series about sustainable fishing. We also plan to have a deep dive into soil, uh, you know, soil so important for New Zealand. Well, you know, it's where everything comes from. So uh, we're going to take a look at soil. And we've got, of course, every week more great interviews with New Zealand's best and brightest in the food and beverage sector. Uh, Over the summer, you can stay tuned to us because we have the Feed Long Lunch, which is a series of podcasts of decent, long, grunty, tasty interviews with uh, some of the leading lights of our sector. And our newsletter, I think we're going to resume, aren't we, Tash, in mid-January? Mid-January, indeed. We'll be back. (laughs) But really, you know, deep dive into the archive as it is. You know, why not? Just log in every day. Uh, So as we head towards the new year, the other question that we wanted to ask were, what are the big trends coming our way? Obviously, there's been a lot of news, um, lots that's positive and some that's not so. So we went to the people to find out from some influential voices uh, and some people who are on the streets doing the mahi in the industry, what the coming trends for 2022 are. Vicky, what did you discover and hear from people? Well, actually, interestingly enough, nothing too outrageously uh, around the corner, but um, it's stuff that we've been seeing anyway. So we've just already discussed the low alcohol trend. I think Libra is pretty much on the same bandwagon that that's going to grow. There's going to be more innovation there. There's going to be more acceptance there, um, which is makes you know it a bit more exciting. And the same with in the same vein, um, a lot more plant based options. Um, so a lot more alternatives, uh, alternative proteins. There's a big push there, I think, with a lot of people thinking that that's going to be um, possibly grain led, seed driven, and that sort of stuff. But it's, I, f- I found it interesting that no one talked about lab meat or sort of that um, genetic. They're actually talking about proteins made from products that we already know exist um, and possibly proteins that we can create in New Zealand from what we already grow and things like that. So that was, you know, no one actually specifically said that, but that seemed to be the way it was going, you know, sort of grains and seeds and plant-based proteins. Um, So that's really interesting. Um, They also, a bit of trend as far as hospitality goes, um, which would would have been my top trend in that it's going to be smaller um, smaller, um, more intimate experiences versus food. Just, you know, instead of just producing food, there's going to be a lot more operators that turn to doing things that they can do with just themselves and one other staff, smaller sort of things. Um, I think you'll definitely see shorter operating hours for lots of people because staff shortages are going to continue. So they're just going to pair back the operations and those sorts of things. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, we're hoping to put, um, all that together, but it'd be interesting to see what um, Vincent, what you came up and what came back from you. Mm, well, I talked to a few people. Um, aquaculture is on a lot of people's minds. You know, the aquaculture industry has been. Really, in the last 10 years, they've put in a lot of groundwork now, and there's quite a lot of innovation happening in that area, and plant and food 
talked to some scientists this week who are um, looking quite seriously into what could be farmed from a native species point of view. So, you know, not just salmon, um, which is uh, obviously hugely popular in New Zealand, but uh, what could be done, uh, for instance, with hapuka or... um, yeah, other breeds of um, native New Zealand fish. So I think there's lots of happening there. The other one that I keep bumping into are people talking about pop-ups as a way of dealing with minimising the risk around, um, uh, you know, the hospo sector. So maybe investing less in a permanent restaurant and just doing pop-ups that might be seasonally related or collaborations with, you know, different entities that might have already have a place where you could put a pop-up but it reduces the risk you know of of um of the chefs and the investors to to have to put up something and then you hope like hell it can be there for five years it also can creates that experience driven sort of um dining doesn't it versus just dining and waiting on people just wanting to go out to eat you're actually it's about creating experiences that they talk about and that whole fear of missing out too as well is a great mm. much more hybrid kind of models as well of um you know of, of maintaining this this kind of um you know odets at home so you know why would you you don't have to go to odets to have a beautiful odets meal so um you know i think that hybrid um it's almost like a, a more fleet of foot mm-hmm. approach to hospo might be mm-hmm. happening mm-hmm. there you go uh, one of the trends that I heard mention of uh, was a little bit twofold. Um, the first was informed. People are expecting that the desire for consumers to know and understand more about what they are eating and drinking and where they're eating and drinking is going to continue to be important. Uh, it's going to continue to rise in the conversation. So uh, a little bit more sophisticated than um, you know the classic kind of move of the early 2010s was the 100-mile diet, you know, where you, everything was locally sourced. It was all farm to table. Uh, nowadays, it's more... Mm. Nowadays there's that shift in terms of really broad stroke sustainability so what is the end-to-end consumption not just of how food and beverage reaches a plate whether that's at a restaurant or at home um, but actually what happens when it leaves it and so what does it look like to have really light footprint kitchens um, in our homes but also uh, in our hospitality industry Uh, more of that kind Mm. of uh, uh, full 360 uh, ecosystem of food consumption and waste. And that also applies into the beverage industry. So kind of alongside this low-no uh, trend, um, also the desire for consumers to be more informed about um, the way that they're drinking when they are out and about. And so one of the first um, bars to move into this space here in New Zealand is a bar called Clipper that I go to, and they've started listing the number of standard drinks um, per cocktail, uh, per beverage on their menu in the hopes of allowing consumers to be more informed. So that that informed consumer trend, I think, is going to continue to be a really big deal. Uh, and the second trend that came, that came up for me was really hospitality-driven, and it was all about collaboration. So I think we're going to see more collaborations between, uh, between various partners, uh, partnerships in restaurants, partnerships in delivery services, partnerships in, in food and beverage, um, food and beverage team-ups. And I think we're also going to see that um, in the ingredient space. So um, collections of brands working together to deliver food experiences to the home consumer. Um, And part of what excites me about that is that it it kind of lends into something that we talked about with Sarah Meikle just a few episodes ago, um, but the shift in the New Zealand food story from being a pantry of ingredients to actually being about experiences. And I think everything that helps move us towards that goal is really important for our overall New Zealand food story. 
Mm, that's a good point. I mean, how many places around New Zealand are thinking about uh, having food festivals, having celebrations of food in their own local area? And that requires a lot more collaboration and talking, doesn't it, locally between the operators? Um, you know, like you, you've had some experience with that, Vicky, haven't you? Do you think that they are uh, following your example of your success in Waikato and Tauranga? Uh, yeah, definitely. In the last year, I, there's been a dry, or they've, there's been an understanding of the need to actually have that those um, relationships and connections in place. Um, so I think, um, yeah, there's been a lot of soul searching about that sort of stuff. But I think. What we need to do is um, I personally think that we need to come up with um, better ways of doing that than focusing that on one weekend a year. It sort of needs to be a little bit more authentic and long-term than that, and um, so it becomes part of the ethos and the community. And I think, um, you know, Wellington's done that really well, focusing it around an event, but the, what they've actually, the reason that, that that event has been so successful is it is an ethos that is within that industry down there, um, that that's why it has succeeded so well. And a lot of people are trying to copy Wellington on a plate, but they're only copying it mm. from Facebook value not from all the work that goes on behind the scenes and all those shifts and things yeah you hear it well, it goes to that kind of authenticity mm. line that you were just um making tash weren't you about you know where let's be transparent let's let's actually have honest conversations about where this is coming from i think you heard it here heard it here first i predict that maybe not 2022 but definitely by 2025 we are going to see the emergence of the new zealand food and beverage trails i think it's going to become much more about where you go to eat and drink and have a full um, foodie epicurean experience in lots of different parts of the country as people try and start telling a story that's driven by experience instead of by ingredients mm. you know so i think mm. we're going to see that up north and we're going to see it move from just being a Waiheke Island wine experience to actually what do the wine experiences of West Auckland and Hawke's Bay and Marlborough look like as opposed, you know, in an actual way that's matched with um, a food and beverage experience more than just a, oh, jump on this, jump in this van and we'll take you around the, uh, the winery tasting rooms. I think we're going to see that expand and get bigger and bigger. And I'm here for the cheese tour. That's what I'm here for, the cheese trail. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I'm with you on that. How are we feeling? Should we do a quick round of optimism versus pessimism? Vicky, how are you feeling about the year ahead? Well, I, I mean, you know, I think, well, I'm just exhausted at the thought of it, actually, so that's not very optimistic. But um, <laughs> I think that from every bad experience or, or anything, and I've sort of been preaching this for the last three months to try and convince myself at the same time, that good things will come of it. And we just need to we just need to work through what we're currently doing to sit back and then go, oh, that's why. And if we didn't have that period in time, we wouldn't have X, Y, Z. You know, and I and I as much as it hurts, I'm gonna go back to the hospital one. You know, prices have to rise. I owned cafes and restaurants 10, 15 years ago and we're still paying for a cup of coffee, you know, it's only about fifty cents more than what we did and the you know everything I can think of has just gone up and through the roof and stuff so we just need to I think there's going to be some prices are going to have to rise but what that's going to do is it's going to make people go and and appreciate great quality as opposed to instead of getting three 
wild bean or whatever coffees a day because that's your habit you actually might just get one that's made really well from someone and it's an experience and you know I think that's what we need to go back to that foods foods back to being something that you appreciate and experience not just something that you just get all the time in a takeaway cup and you consume without thought Mm. more good more Mm. good over quantity Mm. yeah you know absolutely that would probably be my my optimism is that I think uh, my optimism is that I think people are seeing value in things that perhaps they have taken for granted, and that and that enthuses that enthuses me. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that people are going, oh, actually, we are going to need to do some things differently. We're going to need to have an element of transformation if we want to, you know, ride out the next few years. Uh, and any time that there's transformation and growth in an industry, I think that, that that's really beneficial. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's everything from the way that local local communities are working together all the way through to the, to how national organisations and associations are working together to try and, and, and see change that's going to benefit the industry as a whole. But what about you? Vincent, a little op- optimistic joy germ? Uh, well, I'm naturally optimistic, so uh, always look forward to the future. But I think it's going to be a difficult year for a couple of reasons. I think that inflation is on the rise. That raise, raises the price of all the inputs and uh, be really hard for um, hospo and grocery to not raise their prices just because I think the pressure will be on but those price rises won't mean more for the producers it just is actually um, that is a result of of a rising um, uh, cost price index and uh, inflation so I think that will put pressure on I also think that we are not going to be flooded with tourists um, come April I think it will be a winter of discontent for our hospo sector, which will have to rely again on domestic uh, customers, and uh, you know the economic signs are not looking good. I don't think we're heading for a recession, but nobody's talking about boom times ahead. So uh, all this innovation and collaboration you're talking about will be required, right? How are we going to get through this this next period in a way that's smart, clever, collaborative, uh, rather than uh, rather than maintaining, you know, kind of clinging on to the status quo. So that being said, what were you optimistic about? Yeah, I was going to say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm a great believer in innovation, and I think that the the food sector, you know, like any industry when it's under pressure, pressure produces diamonds. So we will see some great products come out of New Zealand. I think there are some wonderful brands that are emerging uh, that are getting international traction um, from New Zealand, you just think about, uh, I don't know, where would you even start? Arepa, the brain food drink by Angus Brown. Um, I think Lewis Road Creamery exporting to the States is a fantastic story. There are just so many great export stories and entrepreneurial stories that are coming out of our sector um, that I, I think the innovation story is probably the most exciting part. And you know, as someone who has tracked innovation and entrepreneurship for many years, I see the food sector is really vibrant. In that regard. Okay, a closing sentence from each of us. Why not give us your tip for a stressless, stressless, uh, happy Christmas, happy festive season? Maybe it's a tip for the kitchen. Maybe it's a tip for who you invite. But <laughs> Vicky, what's what's your what's your top tip for the season as we head out for the year? My top tip is cheat. I mean, it's not about Christmas and not about the food. We all make a big deal about the food, the, Christ- the shopping lists, and we all talk about we started this with what we eat and our Christmas traditions. But really, at the end of the day, 
it's about the people and enjoying that time with them and that's what you remember and I think if if we ever had a year where we need to remember and appreciate being able to share times real times with the people we love and we choose to have around us it's this year so who gives a crap if you go and buy the pav and throw some strawberries on it I mean you know it's just cheap and enjoy the day what about you Vince I think slowing down. I was listening to an interview with Eric Schmidt, who was one of the early CEOs of Google, and uh, he was just talking with, as a kind of senior tech leader, now probably in his 70s, with real dismay at some of the world he has helped create, which is this always-on, always-shouting-at-each-other culture through particularly social media. And the answer is, you know, apart from fixing social media, which is a big, it's just turn that mm-hmm. shit off, slow down. All the things we've just mentioned, eat slowly, eat enjoyably, eat with people. So that's my ambition this summer is to slow down, turn it off and read mm. and eat. <laughs> Fabulous. Okay. There you go. Uh, my Look, my top tip is... Uh, it's almost exactly the same tip that I give every year, which is, you know, the biggest favor you can do yourself and others if you want to decrease stress and increase enjoyment is clearly communicate what your hopes and expectations might be, whether it's around the dinner table or, you know, around the conversation or how you want to spend, you know, your summer vacation. Uh, Communicate your expectations. Understand that, you know, not everybody can meet yours and you probably can't meet everybody else's. But at least if you're all communicating effectively, you'll uh, hopefully find a happy medium. And the second is um, don't forget to find room at your table for one more. There are plenty of people in our community Mm. who um, may find themselves, you know, adrift this Christmas season. And whilst it's not about the food and it is about the people, um, very often we find uh, a lot of refreshment and enjoyment in inviting somebody new to the table. So that's my Mm. top tip for Christmas. Good one. The waifs and strays. I love it. But why can't it be about the food and the people? (laughs) Well, it will be. I mean, I think it will be about the food, you know, um, to some degree, extent. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm excited about my barbecue on Christmas Day. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, what an outstanding year. Um, Thank you both for being part of this wild little adventure that we're on. Uh, It's been an awesome time uh, this year, and I can't wait for 2021. See you on the flip side. I think we're out, team. Bring it on. Bye.